Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 12, please. Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. This passage is, we might call it the moral to the story, the summary, the conclusion, the application of verses 1 through 11 of this chapter, and in particular of this truth contained in verse 5, which says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked for him, for whom the Lord loves he chastens or trains, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, that is the truth that he has shared. Verse 12 says, therefore, when you see a therefore, look and see what it's there for. It always connects what's gone before from what's coming after. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. These, the first three verses here are going to tell us the faith response to God's training. The last three are going to tell us the unbelieving response to God's training. The response of faith to God's training, first of all, is this, that we face God's path courageously. The words here, it says, the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, literally it could say the paralyzed knees. Have you ever used the phrase, I'm paralyzed with fear? These words are used no, a number of times in the Old Testament to indicate a kind of discouragement, uh, a depression, a paralysis of fear that comes on us through difficulty. When you face God's training through difficulty, you are either going to respond head on, straight into it, or your hands are going to hang down, and your knees are going to be paralyzed, you're going to go, oh. It's kind of like you've been sitting here like this, it says, get your hands ready for battle. Strengthen your feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, as much as you know your work is not in vain. 1 Timothy 2, 3, Endure hardship as a good soldier. You are a soldier in the Lord's army. And you need to say, Okay, I'm going to face this right on. I'm going to face it with courage. 
And then I'm going to walk on God's path purposely. Look what he says there in verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet. What's he talking about, making straight paths for your feet? I think what he's saying is this. A straight path does not seek to circumnavigate the training of God. See, when a, when a difficulty is placed in our path, the real temptation is to just go around. We really have to choose at this moment. He says, strengthen your hands, strengthen your knees, walk straight ahead. And he gives a warning with this. Look what he says here. Make a straight path for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated. The word dislocated is used sometimes to indicate like a sprain or a twisted ankle. That's why it's translated in the New King James as dislocated. What's the intent there? He's saying when you come up to a difficulty, there is a hardship involved. There is a lameness involved. And he says if you're not careful, God, who is in the process of training you through this, this circumstance of discipline, he says, right now, it's a lameness, but it could become a dislocation. God expects us to walk purposefully on his path. And then thirdly, God expects us to live out his expectations tenaciously. Look at verse 14. He says, pursue peace and holiness. The word pursue is the same word translated persecute elsewhere in the New Testament. It literally means to run after somebody. One of the places it was used in terms of persecution is when Saul was pursuing or persecuting the Christians. He was running after them, following them, it says, from city to city, trying to get a hold of them. This guy had bulldog tenacity. When he sunk his teeth into something, he went after it. And now, by God's inspiration, we hear this. You should sink your teeth into peace and holiness and run after it, pursue it, hang on to it. And especially, he is telling us this, that that's what we need to do in the difficult time. I think when God puts these two words here, pursue peace and holiness, he's kind of summarizing the Christian life like Jesus did. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here the order is just reversed. Pursue peace and holiness. Are you pursuing peace, especially when you're in difficulty? That's the point here. He says you want to know how to make a straight path for your feet? You want to know how to keep from walking around God's problems, walking away from the things that he's put there for you? He says live at peace. Romans 12, 18 says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. It is certainly true that some people will not be at peace with you. John MacArthur went on to say that this guy drove off in a huff. He didn't say, oh, thank you, I forgive you. There are people who will not allow you to make peace with them. Okay? That is not your responsibility. You are not the Holy Spirit. But it is your responsibility to pursue peace with all people, especially in difficulty. Especially in difficulty. The second thing we're supposed to pursue here is holiness. In your notes, I wrote it this way. God expects you to love him. Love for God is manifest in obedience to his commandments. If you do not obey God's commands, you do not love him. That's, 1 John brings that out over and over. 
Now, what is the response of unbelief? That is the response of belief, of faith. That's essentially what Hebrews 11 is all about, you know. He says, look at these people and what they faced, and look how they faced it. And then he goes on in chapter 12 to say, you should do the same thing. But here now he is going to give us, starting in verse 15, the response of unbelief. Have you ever called yourself an unbeliever? If these things are true of you, you might need to look again and say, wait a minute, am I living like an unbeliever or a believer? He says, first of all, in verse 15, looking carefully. That's, an, that's actually one word in the original language, and it's the same word we get our word for bishop from. It's one of the three words that talks about my job. And the word bishop is, could maybe be translated management or oversight, person who is responsible for an, an area of the ministry. And he says, you should exercise management or responsibility over your life so that something doesn't happen. And what he wants to, you to avoid is falling short of the grace of God. He also wants you to avoid a root of bitterness springing up. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 contains the Apostle Paul's personal experience with the discipline of God. I should say it contains part of his experience, but really contains a little personal example of what we're trying to learn today. 2 Corinthians 12.1 it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. In the previous chapter, he's been boasting about his suffering in the Lord. I'm literally being beaten and shipwrecked and so on. Now he says, I'm going to come to visions and revelations. Just as a sidelight to help you understand why this is written here, the Apostle Paul had to defend his apostleship. These people were saying, oh, Paul's nothing and so on. And as a human being, that's true, but he was given the position of apostle and as such to start the church to a great degree, not, not the only one, but so people needed to listen to the truth God was revealing through him. And so he has to defend himself. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. That's the very presence of God. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast. He's talking about himself, if you haven't gotten the idea yet. I will not boast, verse 5, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Think about it. The Apostle Paul wrote a major part of the New Testament. He says, lest I become exalted by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me or to beat me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, we don't know what that was. 
Two speculations have been put forth, either one of which could be true or both. One was that his eyesight was affected so that he could, he, probably by today's standards, he would have been called legally blind. We have little evidence of that in one of, the, one of the epistles where at the end of it he says, see, I'm signing my name with my own big writing. And he, 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 he had dictated much of what he wrote through other godly men to actually put it in print. It could have been his eyesight. It could have been a person. It could have been somebody who just nipped at his heels all the time and bothered him all the time. We don't know, but something to buffet him lest he be exalted above measure. Verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Does that sound familiar? Have you asked the Lord to take some things out of your life? It's okay to ask. Because sometimes the Lord will take it. But look at verse 9. And God said to me, here's the answer to his prayer, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul resumes talking himself again, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities or my sicknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is that a guy who's got his hands hanging down and his knees paralyzed with fear? Or is that a guy with his hands up and he's moving ahead and he's making straight paths for his feet going, I can do this with the Lord. He clearly says there, I don't like it. He doesn't... He doesn't say, oh, I'm happy to be this way, but he says, I will take glory in this. He says, because the most amazing thing happens when I have my attitude and my heart right with God about the difficulties in my life, then God becomes strong in me. This is what I preached about at Peter Messikep's funeral. Why does God allow a man to suffer with brain cancer for 13 years? Because God says in an early part, earlier part of this book, we have this treasure in vessels of clay that the surpassing glory may be of God. See, you get to thinking sometimes that your life is all about fun and comfort and ease. And God says, wait a minute, let me help you remember what it's about. Here's a little difficulty here. And when you draw close to him, he infuses you with power, and you think, okay, God, I, I can deal with this. Let's go. And then people look at your life, and they say, how are you dealing with that? And, and, and like Paul, you say, you know what? It's not me. It's Christ. And then God gets glory, and the whole the circle is complete. Your life is not about you. It's about God getting glory. And if you will come to the point of accepting that, your difficulties will be much easier to bear. Paul embraced God's plan for his life that included long-term difficulty. And he did so because he believed God would help him bear up in the trial. And he also did so because of this warning written in Hebrews 12. Paul verbalized this warning like this in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He said, I run this Christian race this way. I beat my body daily so that when I have preached to others, I myself might not be a castaway. 
Can you imagine the Apostle Paul having to look in his life and say, Down, boy! Do the right thing today. Say no to this temptation. Say yes to this call to righteousness. He said, I do that because I don't ever want to get to the point where God sets me on the shelf and says, you're done doing the ministry now because you have given up in the face of difficulty. Wow. Unbelief will keep you from God's power. He says, if you're not careful, you will fall short of the grace of God, Hebrews 12, 15. If you're not careful, you will so focus on the difficulty and be so paralyzed and immobilized that God can't do anything through you because you're not coming to him. You will fall short of the grace. The grace of God is waiting to help you, to encourage you, to strengthen you. Wow. James chapter 1 verbalizes it this way. If anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God who gives to all men liberally. Wow. Unbelief will, will keep you from God's power. Secondly, unbelief will cause you to become bitter. Look at Hebrews 12, 15 again. The first thing you need, to, you need to watch out for is falling short of the grace of God. Secondly, if you do not believe and accept God's, what God is doing, a root of bitterness will spring up. You could translate that phrase, a root of bitterness, this way, a poisonous herb. Poisonous herb. We were talking about this ricin poison this week a little bit, and my mom said when she grew up, her, one of her relatives had a castor bean plant. That's where the poison ricin is taken from. Had it there on their front porch, and, and they always said, don't eat any of that plant. Don't eat any of those beans. You know, stay away from that. And in retrospect, now she's thinking, why did they have that there? A poisonous herb. How would you like to be known as a poisonous herb? Oh, there's sister so-and-so. She's just a poisonous herb. Stay away from her. Such and such happened to her a few years ago, and ever since then, she's just been like Naomi in that book of Ruth. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. I had a friend, an acquaintance, in a place I used to live, and this guy had had difficulties in his life, and I don't know all of the math, but I'd, I'd say they probably happened 20 years before I knew him. And, and I didn't know him for that long of a period of time, but almost every time we were together, he rehearsed those difficulties. This person betrayed me. This person let me down. This happened, that happened. I was just that, the other. And you know what his mouth looked like? Like that. This is a guy who had a lovely wife. He had a job. In his job, he was at the top of the order, both in his local place and among his colleagues. But all his life, he focused on those hurts and those hardships. And he meditated on those. And he became bitter. You know what? If you face the difficulties that God allows in your life, and you focus on them, you don't, you don't work through them. You don't make the straight paths. All you do is focus on them. And you go through your life telling everybody how hard your life is. Well, you know what? That's a true statement. Your life is hard. But you've got to decide, Christian, are you going to grow up and be a grace-filled, triumphing, victorious Christian, even in difficulty, or are you going to be Naomi? 
and be a bitter old woman or a bitter old man. The danger here, Christian, is not only for yourself. It says if this root of bitterness springs up, if you become this root of bitterness, it says many will be defiled. Say this to yourself when you get up tomorrow morning. I think I'm going to mess my family up. Try this on when you come to church next week. I think I'd like to really ruin this church. Do you know that's the potential? If you allow bitterness to come up because of the difficulties of your life, because of some difficulty you encounter in the church. Believe me, if, if you haven't been disappointed at church yet, just hang in here for a while. You know the old saying, if you find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. I had, I had a guy say that the first Sunday he came to church. His kid said that to him on the first Sunday he came to our church in Tukwila once. Hey, this isn't a perfect church. You will be disappointed. I will disappoint you at some point. I will say something from this pulpit. As hard as this is believe, I will say something that you have a hard time with. And if you focus on that, and if you meditate on that, I guarantee you, you can become a bitter person. And if you hang in here long enough, you can hurt this church. But if you, like God, wants you to do, you see this difficulty that God has allowed so that you will grow up. You say, God, I'm going to walk right through this. I'm going I'm to take everything you say about how to live in this situation, and I am going to pursue peace and holiness in this situation believing that you will strengthen me and grow me up through it, then you will not become bitter, but you will become more sweet. Wow. Unbelief will result from worldly priorities. Look here at this again. We have this truth about, about Esau, and be careful in looking at the example of Esau. This is not talking about an example of sinfulness. Esau is being brought forward to us as an example of a guy who made a choice based on certain motives in his life. And essentially, he's saying this, Esau exchanged the long term for the short term. And look at him. And he's saying, Christian, you don't want to be that way. The best translation here, when we read this phrase, don't be like a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. I think the best translation of that one morsel of food is this, a single meal. It might be really literally a single eating, a single time of eating. Esau came in from hunting, and he smelled the food his brother Jacob was cooking. And he said, Jacob, I'm starving to death. Give me some of that food. Jacob said, I'll give you some of that food. What's it worth to you? I want your birthright. Now, the birthright of the eldest son in a Hebrew family was to get a double portion of inheritance, plus to have the official line of the father go through him and things like to be the priest in the family and that sort of thing. He was in line to inherit that from his father. And, of course, he wasn't fully aware of it, but he was in line to be in line in the family of Christ. Now, God had foreordained that this was going to happen, so this is not a surprise to God. But Esau came in from hunting, and he was starving, hungry. And he said, hey, brother, give me some of that food you're making. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright. He said, what is this birthright to me? Go ahead, you can have it. And he took the food. For one meal, he sold his birthright. 
I was almost that hungry yesterday. You know, I don't get hungry very often. You know why that is? Because I carefully plan my eating. <laughs> yesterday, I had breakfast about the normal time, and then Sue and I went to do some shopping and whatnot. And, and about 3 o'clock, I'm going, man, I am really hungry. I'm, I'm feeling faint. You know? And I, I never get that hungry. I just don't let that happen. You know? <laughs> and I just about would have sold my birthright for that mess of pottage. There's a, there's, a, there's a very deep spiritual truth here, folks. What are you willing to exchange the long term of your life for? What single meal will you give up some long-term blessing in order to get right now? As I thought about this, I thought about, I thought about a guy that used to be the president of these United States. And he just had to have certain things in his life. And you look at it and think, man, you're the president of the United States. Can't you control yourself for just a little bit? Am I way out of line here? You look at one of the CEOs of these huge companies that are indicted for, for all this money manipulation they do, and you think, buddy, how many millions of dollars do you need to make? You're already making a fortune every year. But no, he's got to have some more. You can't live without it. Wow. Let's bring it, let's bring it down to where we live. I'll just die if I don't have her for my girlfriend or my boyfriend. If she won't love me, then life isn't worth living. Dare I be extremely crude, but get right where you live and say this, I'm just going to explode if I don't have sex. I'd do anything to own a car like that. I'd give my right arm to live in that neighborhood. I can't take the pain anymore. I'm going to leave this life. What will it profit a man if he loses his soul in order to gain the world? Is it really worth, is what you are exchanging, the long-term blessing of God, is it really worth giving that up in order to have this one meal? You know, there's a very, very simple but very profound truth, and it's this. Just as you are tempted one meal at a time, you have the ability to say no to temptation one item at a time. All you have to deal with is the struggle that's in front of you. That's it. And the word that's used about Esau is the word profane. You know what it means? It literally means a threshold that you walk on when you go in, into a house. You know why that's used for the word profane? Because Esau was a guy who didn't treat spiritual things like they were valuable. They're just like a threshold. No big deal. What's my birthright? Give me that food. And then later on, of course, you know, his brother manipulated some circumstances later on and got the birthright. And then Esau was hopping mad. You know what the scripture says? He sought to repent. Now, this is not talking about salvation. This is changing his mind about a decision he'd made. He sought to repent with tears. God says, there was no way to take it back. 
you know what unbelief can do, Christian? Unbelief can create permanent hardships. Some of you know well what I'm talking about because you've struggled with some things. You, you took that meal and it set up the rest of your life in a challenging way. And I don't mean to add insult to injury. What I do mean to add is warning for the rest of your life. God says, just say no right now and say yes to righteousness and you will get through this. Would Esau have died from hunger? See, that's the really simple truth. Was I about to die yesterday from hunger? No, I, I could have fainted. I've never fainted from hunger before, but it could have happened. But I wouldn't have died, would I? Obviously, because I have a reserve. Hey, Christian, you are not going to die if you say no or yes at the time when God says you need to. You're not going to die. You have a reserve, too, and it's called Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the Internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church P.O. Box 69 Ferndale, Washington 98248 Telephone 360-384-3111 We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.